Hello and welcome to Some Woman, the podcast about great women through history by all right women in Glasgow. I'm Kathleen. And I'm Julia. Hello. Hi. Hi again. How have you been? Very good. It's been a whole week since we've seen each other. A whole week. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. We immediately <laughs> finished recording the last one and started recording this one. Well, we took some pause to have a bit of a deep chat, because we, as we are wont to do. Yeah. So we've caught up in between the two and now we're back. And we're back. What have you been thinking about? Well, I hate to keep bringing it up, but for all the listeners out there, <laughs> just so you're up to date, <laughs> I'm newly single and back on the dating Ooh. scene. And it's, let me tell you. Lads and ladies. It is harrowing, to say the least. Wow, it's a good turn. Yeah. Look. Yeah, I'm back on the dating apps. So any of you guys and gals in Glasgow, keep a lookout for me. She's free, she's single. Um, she's ready to go to single. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I got ghosted, Kate. Ghosted? Yeah. I wish it was an actual ghost. That'd be fun. See, I would like that. Preferable. This version of ghosting is both cowardly and completely a mystery to me. I don't understand it. Okay. Let me tell you why. Tell me why. So I went on like two dates with this guy, right? Okay. And we seemed to get along really well. Mm -hmm. You know, good chat. Both like the sugar babes. What's not to like? (laughs) I'm going to erase names for GDPR reasons. (laughs) Everything you want in a man. Uh, look, the bar is on the floor, okay? Um, <laughs> but anyway, I messaged after the second date to be like, oh, do you want to go out again? Mm-hmm. Chill. A normal question to ask when you've got along with someone. Absolutely. Uh, didn't get any response. And that's fine, but I left some earrings and a ring that I really like in his flat. No. So now they're being held captive in his home. <laughs> Hostage. Hostage situation. And I've... Look, I'm not proud of this. Okay. But I have messaged him several times to be like, look, it's chill that you don't want to go out again. Yeah. But could I please get my jewellery back? No, that's that's fine. He stole from you. Thank you. He then showed up on a different dating app. So obviously I sent a message on that. <laughs> I love how you're not even saying the names of the dating apps. Oh. It's not like just not him, but like... <laughs> There's no way to trace it back. So that no one's implicit. No one is implicated in any of this, um, other than me and my terrible dating skills. Um, So original app was Tinder, second app was Hinge, now you're all caught up. Just to be clear. There you go. Other dating apps are available. (laughs) Um, So it showed up on Hinge, so I obviously commented on the picture saying, verbatim I said, there's no way this is socially acceptable, but please give me my earrings back. So did you reply? Of course he didn't reply, Kate. I fucking... I'm so mad. So then, (laughs) the third and final step, after the repeated messages on the original app, the message on the second app, the third and final step that I took was that I sent signed an address envelope (laughs) to his flat with a message in it saying, hello, please give me my earrings back. Love from Julia. Kiss. (laughs) Kiss. Should have left the kiss off. Sweeten the deal. Yeah, but I want it to come across as not an... I'm not being completely unreasonable. You have my things and yeah. I just want to leave it. I want to round it off nicely. Yeah. With you giving me my earrings back. Here's a kiss. But anyway, he's not sent them back. So <laughs> If you're listening. Sir. <laughs> Sir, please send the earrings to Redacted. Redacted. You've got it in the envelope. It's all there. It's all there. I've done all the hard work for you. 
Stamped and addressed. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm not yours anymore. Where are my earrings? So yeah, basically, introduction back into the dating game is mm-hmm. 10 out of 10. Except not really. Except not really. Pretty terrible, actually. But it's all right. But you've got, you know, been in a long relationship, out of it. Back in the game. Go. Nothing but finger guns from now on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's my update. Yeah. Dangerous game. It is a dangerous game. And you play and you lose. Mm. <laughs> Grim. Grim. So if anyone's single out there... I mean, that's not what this podcast is for. Someone at gmail.com <laughs> yeah. with a short description and a headshot. Uh, must be into the sugar boobs. What have I done this week? Hmm. Uh, nothing. I'm in a relationship, so I don't have... Wow. I know, but I don't have any fun dating stories. Went to Stop Hill. God bless NHS. <laughs> and out like a flash. Well, fine. You'll be glad to hear. Yeah. That's the, as exciting as my weekend gets. Mm. And that's it. That's it. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Thanks that's for us. Join us next week. <laughs> Kate goes to the shops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we realised as well, we didn't address on the first episode the origin of oh, yeah. some woman. Mm-hmm. So the phrase, you're some woman, mm. I'm sure if listeners in Glasgow, you'll be aware I mean, it's you're some women, mm. essentially. But I feel like when you say it in that dialect, it has just a much deeper meaning. And yeah. it can either mean you're some woman, as in you've done something incredible, like you're inspirational, or it can mean you're so difficult, you're so stubborn. Mm. Um, but I find quite a lot, quite often in kind of Scots stuff, those are one and the same. Like the women who are the most tenacious and stubborn are the women to be most admired. 100%. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse that. Um, learned, but it was a burp of... It was a burp of agreement. An acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we really liked it. Um, yeah. As Glaswegians, I think it's a nice thing to see. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, you're some woman. Yeah. Yeah. Also, just to address the fact that I am fully aware that I have a Glasgow Uni accent. Again, anyone outside of Glasgow might not be familiar with this phenomenon. Uh-huh. But, but it's serious. We need to address it. I know I have it. I can't help it. Deal with it, basically. Why I'm so aggressive this episode? <laughs> like, literally, second episode in, I'm showing my true colours straight. <laughs> She's a witch. Yeah. Anyway, she stopped at those earrings and saw red. Look, I I won't get into it. We've already got into it. We're out of it again now. We're back out in the open. Mm-hmm. Never see him again. Has lost it. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> any other updates before we crack on? No. Okay. <laughs> and you are first this week. I'm first this week. Shall we just get cracking? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's fucking go for it. So this one is a bit of a wild ride. Mm. I've got a few things to say beforehand. Mm. I am not condoning everything this woman said or did. Okay. Okay. There are children in cages at one point. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to say that right now. Okay. There are some children in cages. Um, and she has some viewpoints that by modern standards might sound very dated. Mm. Um, let's bear in mind that society was a very different beast when she was active. And also, <laughs> jokes aside, I think that we allow a kind of spectrum of opinions in right-wing politics that we don't allow in left-wing politics. That's a hot take. A hot take. Entirely. Um, I think that, you know, if someone is right of centre they can be fiscally conservative quote unquote or they can be a 
like a full-on fascist and they're mm. all right-wing. Whereas I feel like sometimes in the left side of politics, if you don't agree on absolutely everything, mm. you're not doing it right. You're not a proper leftist. You're not a proper socialist. So I don't agree with everything this person did, but they did it all in the name of socialism. Okay. Um, so let's just acknowledge that you can disagree with people. And that's it. And that's it. <laughs> you can and should be critical of people who inspire you. And lest we forget, there were children in cages. <laughs> that <laughs> most, was very wise. Most importantly, um, the children. But on with the children in cages. On with the children. This is the story of Mother Jones, the grandmother of all agitators. Let's fucking get I love into it. it. Yours always have like a... A subtitle. A little, yeah, tagline. I liked it. That's good. Gorgeous. Well, I've also realised that... I say always, this is the second episode. Second episode, but I'll keep up. Um, Notice that both of mine so far have very like maternal mm. ties. Um, maybe I'll branch out. And this is where we announce that Kate is pregnant. No, she's not. 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 I've had a pregnancy scare. We'll get onto that in a different We'll get onto that in a moment. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about it more in the end, but this will probably be out. We'll probably miss Mother's Day. Shout out to all the mums. Oh, yeah, especially our mums. Our mums are all to boogie. Fucking sick. KB, all to boogie. Love you both. And Mother's Day, not a great day for everyone. Hope no. you spend it with people you love. 100%. Right, God bless. Let's get started. It's going to get a little bit. Um, fuck the British Empire. You ready for this? Always. Always. Okay. So, Mary G. Harris was born in Cork, Ireland in 1837. We don't know the date. She was baptised on August 1st. Let's assume a Leo. <laughs> Please. Are you give a, not my favourite side, but I do know some Leos that I love. Sure. <laughs> if this was a visual medium, you would see the whole body eye roll I just did. I'm going to do it for every single woman because I know it will annoy Julia. Cool. Cool, got it. A Leo. In 1845, uh, the Great Famine struck. Now, as to what that means, most people will have heard of the Great Famine as a time in Irish history when the potato crop was affected by a blight or a disease, meaning that there were no potatoes. Now, whilst that is true and that's what happened, it is just the tip of the iceberg and the rest of the iceberg is the British Empire on its bullshit. Unsurprisingly. Which is quite often the rest of the iceberg in a lot of scenarios. In a lot of scenarios, that's basically what's happening. So knowing full well (laughs) that this was ongoing, the British continued to export huge quantities of remaining healthy crops and other food from Ireland to completely destroy their resources. In 1847, 400,000 Irish people died of starvation, while 4,000 British ships carried vegetables, meat, fish and clothes to England from the Irish. So let's just, it's not about this happening in Ireland. Mm -hmm. But let's just take a moment to acknowledge, never a bad time to remember that that is what happened. Yeah. And it was not a simple crop failure. So I've also seen some seen some sources that suggest calling it um, Angor Tamor. Sorry for my bad Gaelic. Um, which means the great hunger. Mm-hmm. Just to acknowledge that this was an actual atrocity that was committed against the Irish mm-hmm. and not a thing that happened yeah. one day. One of many, maybe. <laughs> one of many. So because of this, Mary and her family emigrate to Canada when she's a teenager, as a lot of Irish people did, and experienced discrimination because of their immigrant status and Catholic faith. She never graduated school, but eventually she became a teacher in a convent in Monroe, Michigan at the age of 23, and she fucking hated it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's life. 
1861, she moved to Memphis and she married George E. Jones, who was an organiser of the National Union of Iron Molders. And that brought in enough money for Mary to be able to leave teaching and become a housekeeper. Um, it's about to get sad. Mm -hmm. I know, they all do, but hey. Six years later, George and Mary had three daughters and one son, all under five years old. All four of the children and George died in the 1867 yellow fever epidemic. Oh, jeez. Mary moved to Chicago to start a dressmaking business in 1871. And, sorry, she moved to Chicago to start a dressmaking business and then in 1871 lost her home, her shop, and all of her possessions in the Great Chicago Fire. So within 10 years, she got married, had four children, lost all of her children and her husband, moved to a new city, lost her entire livelihood and all of her possessions. Chill. So like, fucking rock bottom. Yeah. In a big way. Yeah, that's literally one of the worst fucking things I've ever read yeah. to happen to one person. Mm -hmm. Anyway. That's enough for a, a lifetime, never mind. Absolutely. And she, she's already emigrated to escape yeah. the hunger in Ireland. Yeah. Listen. Ugh. So after this, um, there was kind of a community effort by Chicagoans to rebuild the city in which she took part in. And that familiar, familiarized her, excuse me, with unions and organizations within the city. She joined the Knights of Labor, which was a North American workers' rights federation and began to organize strikes and protests with them. So remember, this era of workers' rights protests in the USA, the late 1800s, early 1900s, the Gilded Age, as it was called, because there was such excessive wealth at the top of the pile, but underneath everything was just like rotten and people were living in extreme poverty and being exploited uh, so disgustingly. It was particularly dangerous to strike because owners of factories and mines would pay off police and hire private firms and security guards, basically militia, mm -hmm. to violently break strikes. So people were shot, beaten to death. This is no joke. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the initial strikes that Mary took part in failed for these reasons. And in 1886, something called the Haymarket Affair happened. During a peaceful protest for an eight-hour workday, the police tried to disperse the strikers and someone threw a bomb, which resulted in a shoot-off and the deaths of seven police officers and four civilians. The Knights of Labour were disbanded because there was a rise in fear of labour organisations and anarchism. So people thought that they were kind of directly linked mm. to all of this violence that was happening. Okay. Mary Jones, however, was undeterred and recognised the value of striking and protest and began to work closely with UMW, the United Mine Workers and the Socialist Party of America. She encouraged men to keep striking against these hired militia and organised the wives and children of men who were striking to demonstrate on their behalf, which was smart because obviously it would be a lot more disastrous for men and factory operators to be seen to be oppressing women and children than working men. Mm. With this, the UMW saw more successful and fewer violent strikes uh, and she started pissing off a lot of rich men this way. In 1902, she was on trial for ignoring an injunction that banned striking miners from meeting at the age of 65. She's getting older, but she's not slowing down. Oh, yes. At the trial, Reese Blizzard, who was the district attorney for West Virginia, said, There sits the most dangerous woman in America. She comes into a state where peace and prosperity reign, crooks her finger, and 20,000 contented men lay down their tools and walk out. Do you know what? What? That is my goal in life. How? What a fucking compliment. Yeah. Literally. Uh-huh. And she is not by any means to like suggest that because she's getting older, she's getting weaker, but the way that these rich men would have viewed like an elderly woman yeah. as, you know, a woman in general. Yeah. <laughs> as uneducated, as weak. 
and she's 65 mm-hmm. and he is like they're scared of her yeah they are scared of what she can do as we know when men in power start denouncing women like that they are worried mm-hmm. about what they can achieve and she had shown over and over again that she was tenacious she was determined she was organized and she knew how to get results she fostered this mother image she often pretended to be older than she actually was mm-hmm. um, because that garnered a lot of sympathy mm-hmm. she called the striking men her boys and um, so she had this like just like mama used to make mm-hmm. like branding but for civil unrest yeah <laughs> which is genius yeah so she understood how to motivate strikers manipulate the public this was the era of men like carnegie and rockefeller making obscene amounts of money from exploiting their workers and they stood to lose a lot of it as she managed to convince men and women even women who weren't working to support strikes and that's what she did she has an amazing quote about it um, she said, never mind if you're not ladylike, you are womanlike. God Almighty made the women. The Rockefeller gang of thieves made the ladies. Oh my God. Oh, on my grave. So. On my fucking grave. <laughs> so she's saying, you know, you've been told that this is who you are mm-hmm. and this is what you get and you have to be happy with that. But that's not true. Yeah. They've made you that way and everything that you need and everything that you know you already have. I'm sorry. Love it. I'm in, by the way. I'm scared for when the kids in cages are going to turn up because I'm in. I know. Right. Okay. We'll get there. We're getting there soon. Okay. And on the back of that, I will say that she had very strong opinions about women's role in society. Mm -hmm. She disagreed very strongly with suffrage. Okay. For example, saying that women didn't need the vote to quote unquote raise hell, which like, sure. Okay. That's, I mean, an opinion. That's an opinion she had. I get, I like, I get it, but like also the vote would be good. And she felt that women were important as emotional and motivational support of striking men, but not necessarily as workers themselves. And a woman's place was more in the home. Okay. Again, another opinion to have. Yes. So this is what I'm talking about, disagreeing with her on some fronts. Yeah. But let's look at the context. As you said, Julia, where are the children in cages? (laughs) Here they come. Oh, no. Let's jump back a year to 1901. Okay. Mother Jones had been brought to Pennsylvania to organise and encourage strikes in silk mills. The young women that worked there, teenagers, were demanding to be paid an adult wage and Mother Jones agreed that the girls were being robbed of money they had earned and they were being denied the right to an education to be able to pay for their own children's education in the future. She went to New Jersey to compare the situation there and told the workers in Pennsylvania that new child labour laws were being enforced to a much higher standard and that there were men at work in the mills encouraging them to insist that they receive the same treatment in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. The mills said that they would have to close if they paid adult wages, and in the end, the girls had to accept a settlement and return to work. But Mother Jones was not finished with protesting child exploitation. Here we go. Mm-hmm. In 1903, she attended a huge protest in Kensington, Philadelphia, of about 45,000 textile workers of all ages. Firstly, that number of people. Mm-hmm. This is before social media yeah and even like tv and radio yeah and maybe they had radio but like those radio but like getting the word out for that for that many people they were demanding a reduced work week of 55 hours reduced to 55 hours and a ban on night work for women and children the media largely ignored it because a lot of the mill owners were stockholders in the newspapers which fuck obviously Mm -hmm. i know something's never changed you know um Mother Jones said, quote, well, I've got stock in these little children and I'll arrange a little publicity. 
She's got the fucking quotes. The soundbite. She's brandable. She's right. So she did something like truly 1900s <laughs> and organized a children's march made up of children who worked in the mills and the mines from Philadelphia to New York to tell President Theodore Roosevelt that child labor laws were not being enforced to a reasonable standard. Mm-hmm. So when I read that, I was like, okay, making a kid walk from Philadelphia to New York is bang out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there must have been waves of kids. Okay. There were not. Right. <laughs> it was one platoon of children and it took them three weeks. Now, that's not the best. That's quite a statement. Yeah. But that is kids very much walking for three weeks. Yeah. I looked, right. So I looked it up and it's in distance or rather in hours walk. Yeah. It's the equivalent of us walking to Aberdeen. No, thank you. Except that we're in our 20s and we did not spend our childhood in mines and mills. So we have all our fingers. And toes. And also, can you imagine how much we would complain? Yeah, we would be complaining the whole fucking way. Literally. We'd like maybe get to Perth. Yeah. I'd be like, fuck this. Get on the train, go home. I'm out. But yeah, so these were essentially a lot of kids who had really stunted growth. Yeah. Had been maimed in some way. Yeah. By their work. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, um, it happened. They were fed and sheltered along the way by unionist and socialist allies. And obviously numbers dwindled as they went. Mm-hmm. They started with 400 children and adults. And by the time they arrived in New York, there were only 60 left. Oh which is still like an insane effort. Yeah. But hey. At Coney Island... Mother Jones, here we go, put children in cages to dramatise what she felt was happening to these kids. So it was a publicity stunt, but I just don't really think a kid can conceptualise being locked in a cage enough to consent to it Also, properly. by the time they're at Coney Island, that's like the amount of trauma they have been through to get to that point. Yeah. Then it's like, hey, get in this Timmy, cage. get in this cage, because it's a statement no, I'm not going to do that. I'm absolutely knackered. I've got no fingers and toes left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I Jonesy, can, like, I can say what you're going off her, but this is just... I'm not going off her. This is the only part where you've lost me. The rest of it, I've been like... Right on. On yourself. Now, I'm a bit, I'm a bit concerned, but continue, She please. shouldn't have her PBG. Absolutely not. That is getting revoked. It's not PBG. If she had it revoked. to begin with, we're taking it back. We've got through the rough bit. Okay. Um, no. President Roosevelt refused to see them. Okay. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, but a year later, the National Child Labour Committee was formed to enact legislation protecting children, and Pennsylvania was much stricter in enforcing its child labour laws. Sorry, can you imagine, just to backtrack slightly? Go on. You walk all the way there. Uh huh. <laughs> you're, you're in a cage. <laughs> you're like chapping the door, and he's like, <laughs> no. Chapping the door. <laughs> This is how I'm imagining this has gone. And they chat and run away. Yeah, the plane's on the door run. And Ted's like, nah, you're not coming in. Big Ted. I would be, even as a child, I would be so raging. Yeah. Anyway, continue. But listen, this was known as the March of the Mill Children. And one of many children's marches through the United States' long history of strike and protest. I'm sure we'll see another one at some point. So there is a lot more that I could get into. She lived for a very long time. And was active until very shortly before her death. Mm-hmm. She stayed with the United Mine Workers into the 1920s, organising strikes. She intervened in strikes when they had turned violent, mm-hmm. like the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike of 1912, in which she was accused of conspiracy to commit murder, oh. refused to accept her court martial, and was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but <laughs> later released. 
She was arrested again and went to prison for helping to organize a minor strike known as part of the Southern Colorado Coalfield War in which 60 people died and over 400 were arrested. This was a strike against the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company owned by none other than John D. Rockefeller Jr. himself. And in 1914, a year later, she met him face to face. (gasps) Till I just gasped. I know. That That was a big gasp. She met John D. Rockefeller Jr., face-to-face to to talk to him about the conditions. In 1915, he visited the mines himself and agreed to introduce reforms. Wow. Pretty fucking huge. Yeah. Um, I saw some kind of, like, critical suggestions about how she negotiated very amicably with him. And, you know, could you call her a hypocrite? But I think that shows experience and, like, just a knowledge of how these things happen and how to influence these people. Mm-hmm. It seems like she really knew, she understood who she was up against. And also the moment that a woman speaks above a whisper, she's hysterical, so we shouldn't listen to her. Yeah. So but she, she went, obviously got into it with that awareness of the perception. Yeah. And just, yeah, savvy. And she's been around the block, so she knows what she's she talking knows about. What, she knows what's happening. And also he put her in jail the year before. <laughs> And she yeah. fucking turned up on his doorstep like, hey, it's me, yeah. Mother Jones. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I couldn't even... She lived for a very long time and she was part of so many strikes. Mm. And this was a very formative time in the history of the United States. So I encourage you all, this isn't a Google it yourself moment. We do not have the time to get into like yeah. all of the things she was part of and all the things she did. I would encourage you to go and read about her. Mm. She is just an incredible woman who died in Maryland in 1930 at the age of 93 and was buried in the Union Miners Cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois, alongside strikers who had been killed in the 1898 Battle of Verdun. This was another strike by the UMW in which militia had been hired to break, resulting in the deaths of nine miners. Mother Jones had referred to the miners killed in the strike as her boys. In 1932, 15,000 Illinois mine workers protested the UMW and converted it into the Progressive Mine Workers of America. In the spirit of recognising Mother Jones as an inspiration for their protest, they raised over $16,000 in the 1930s. Yeah. They raised over $16,000 to purchase a proper headstone for her grave. October the 11th is recognised as Miner's Day, but in Mount Olive, it is also celebrated as Mother Jones Day. Aww. To round it off, she was once denounced in the United States Senate as the grandmother of all agitators. She replied, I hope I live long enough to be the great-grandmother of all agitators. Sick. Sick. She's got the quotes. She, right. She's got the, she got the quotes, she's got the captions. Mm-hmm. She's got the branding, she's got the t-shirts. Yeah. Joking aside, she was an orator. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, she knew how to motivate crowds mm-hmm. and how to talk to people and inspire them. Mm-hmm. What a woman. Some would say. Some, Some woman. woman. That was great. Wasn't that fun? Love that. Love her. Children in cages, notwithstanding. Yes. They probably Less weren't standing. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I think an incredible woman. Yeah, I love that. We love minors and we love a strike. Yeah, fam- famously, this is a <laughs> podcast run by someone from Scotland and someone from the north of England, so we love a minor strike. Yeah. That was great. Wasn't that good? Okay, let's do another one. Yeah. Let's go, Julia. Who you got for me? So this week, I'm keeping in the realm of the more kind of contemporary ones and this is someone who's who died quite recently and so she's been on my mind a lot so I'm it kind of just the research came very easy to me because I've been reading a lot about that so I'm going to talk about uh Toni Morrison the writer and academic okay 
So let's get into it. Amazing, let's go. Um, not sure if anyone cares about the references, but just for the sake of argument, I got this information from a few different sources. Um, the New York Times archive, Wikipedia, of course, The Telegraph, The Guardian, Catapult Magazine, and National Endowments for the Humanities. I think that's everything. Cheers, lads. Um, yes, thanks to all those places, because I was literally, I mean, if anyone from my work is listening, sorry, but I was sitting at my desk at work <laughs> doing this instead of doing my actual work. So that's incriminating. Never mind. Um, Toni Morrison was born Chloe Wofford. She was born on the 18th of February, 1931 in Lorraine, Ohio. She was the second of four children. Um Both of her parents came from sharecropping families. Her father had endured incredible amounts of discrimination in his life. um, And so he had a great deal of distrust towards white people throughout his life, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely justified. Um, He had actually witnessed a lynching um, of two black men on his street when he was only 15. Oh, my God. That was when he still lived in Georgia. And shortly after that is when he moved to Ohio. Obviously, the trauma of that, he absolutely pieced out of there. Throughout all this time, they're devout members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in America. And the way that Tony was raised, it was always the house was full of fairy tales and folklore, both from their African heritage and from being devoutly Christian as well. But they continued to experience just incredible amounts of discrimination. For instance, when Tony was just two years old, their landlord set fire to their house because her parents hadn't paid the rent. Oh, my God. And I read that Tony's father in this, well, the house is on fire, basically. Mm -hmm. And he responds to this by laughing at the landlord. And this just kind of speaks to how he tried his best to just maintain his dignity and the dignity of his family yeah in the face of just complete evil my i I just this is an auditory an audio medium Mm -hmm. my iris just like shot into my hair like yeah because that's the strength the strength of that man Mm -hmm. okay but anyway when tony is 12 um they actually convert to catholicism okay um at least she is um, confirmed into the catholic faith um, and she takes the confirmation name, Anthony of Padua, hence Tony. So oh, that's gorgeous. Um, she starts going by Tony when she goes to university. Mm-hmm. But backtracking a little bit, when she's at school, she's kind of unsurprisingly very well performing when she's mm-hmm. at school. She's on the debate team. She's on the yearbook staff. And she's also in the drama club. She was an avid reader from as early as she can recall, basically. And she loved Jane Austen. And Leo Tolstoy, she cites them as main influences for her as a child. And it's like, Tolstoy, when you're a child. Yeah. Literally 25, have an English degree, have not read Tolstoy. I've been anyway, entirely War and Peace for like six years. Who's got the time? Who's got the time? Toni Morrison. Well, clearly. And she loved that these authors presented their own cultural roots. So even though she couldn't directly relate mm-hmm. as a black person, she felt that the honesty of their depiction of their lives felt that she could relate to them. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> the empathy of this woman. Yeah. Um, but she's very highly educated by all accounts. She goes to Lorraine High School and she graduates with honours. She then goes to Howard University in Washington, D.C. 
and she graduated with a bachelor's in English and classics in 1953. Um, and like I said, during her time at university is when she starts going by Tony instead of Chloe. Um, and she's also a member of the Howard Repertory Theatre while she's at university and she travelled around the country acting in plays. And she takes up some postgraduate study at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Mm-hmm. And she writes her master's thesis on Virginia Woolf and William Faulkner and achieved her Master of Arts in 1955. So I could stop there. Honestly. That's pretty good, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but this is where she starts her teaching career. So this is one of the key things with Toni Morrison is that she was obviously a writer, but she was also an academic mm-hmm. and was a teacher for most of her life mm-hmm. um, and a really celebrated one and a really good one. I have to, such, to say uh, the least. Yeah, I just have such like such a admiration for mm-hmm. teachers. Both my parents were teachers mm-hmm. um, growing up, and it's just such a someone who is a good teacher. Who's it's just incredible the good you can do when you're a good teacher who really knows what they're talking about, really cares about it. Yeah, I have 100%. a lot of respect for that. So after her graduation from her masters. Um, she, t- she starts teaching at Texas Southern University, but by 1957, she's back at Howard, where she's her undergrad, um, as an English tutor. And it's at this point that she starts working on her own writing. So around this time, she gets married to Harold Morrison, who is a Jamaican architect. They're married in 1958. They have two sons, Harold Ford and Slade Morrison. Let's Harold take a Ford. moment of pause for those names. Harold Ford. Harold Ford and Slade Morrison. <laughs> like a kind of 1910s tycoon, Harold Ford. Exactly. And Slade. Slade Morrison. Powerful names. Fantastic names. Unfortunately, the marriage doesn't work out. Okay. Um, the couple get divorced in 1964, which is actually while she's pregnant with Slade. They oh. get divorced, which is sad. Yeah. While she's teaching at Howard, she's married to to Harold Morrison. Like I said, she starts her writing exploits at this point. Um, She joins a writing group and she felt a lot of comfort being around other people who appreciated literature as much as she did. And the format of the group is that everyone would just bring a story or a poem each week or however often that they met um, and they would all just discuss it. And Tony found that she was unprepared or underprepared for one of the sessions. And she just jots down a story um, about a little girl who prays to God to have blue eyes. And this is the very early stages of her first novel, which is The Bluest Eye. So, like I said, she gets divorced um, from Harold. After the divorce, she leaves Howard and starts working um, as an associate editor at Random House. Okay. Obviously a huge (laughs) publishing house. She She stays at Howard for a while. But then she moves to Syracuse, New York in 1967 um, to become a senior editor. So the way that it would kind of work when she started working at Random House was that she would leave the boys with the housekeeper, go to work, come home, make the boys dinner, play with them, put them to bed. And then she started writing then. So she's doing a whole day of work as an editor, is coming home and then writing. Or she would wake up very early in the morning and start writing and the story about the girl with blue eyes stuck with her in her mind and she keeps reworking it and reworking it and like I said it becomes The Bluest Eye which is published by Holt, Reinhardt and Winston in 1970 so we're off and running as a writer now by this point okay but her academic career continues 
from 1971 to 1972. Well, around that time, she becomes um, the Associate Professor of English at the State University of New York, SUNY, while still continuing her work at Random House. She mentors other African-American writers. She puts together an anthology of African-American work. She's writing her second novel, Sula, and that's published in 1973. And in 1975, she's nominated for the National Book Award for Fiction. So she's really gaining momentum with her writing career at this point. Mm -hmm. Her third novel, Story, uh, Story of Solomon, it's published in 1977, and that's really where she becomes kind of a name mm -hmm. in American writing. Yes, as a writer, she's selected um, for the Book of the Month Club. She wins the National Book Critics Circle Award, and she wins the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters Award. So this is some good shit that she's writing. Yeah. Basically, it's not even just that she's been recognised as a writer; she's been recognised as an incredible writer. Mm -hmm. And she's winning awards left, right, and centre. And because of all of this, in 1983, after 20 years, she finally leaves publishing to devote more time to writing. And as an aside, at this point, she's living in a converted boathouse on the Hudson River. Oh, there you go. Which sounds very nice to me. Sounds gorgeous, but difficult. Yes, not the best, but I'm sure it was fabulous. She made it work. Um, she publishes Tar Baby, another novel, and then she is named the Albert... Schneitzer Professor of the Humanities at SUNY in, in Albany. Apologies for any pronunciations just off the bat. Around this time, she starts to write her first play, which is called Dreaming Emmett. And it's based on the true story of Emmett Till, who was killed by white people in 1955 after he was accused of whistling at a white woman. What? Which just, we're not the authority to talk on this kind of no. thing. But just when you hear things like this... It just makes me feel sick to my stomach. And it, I'm sure that we were both like, what the fuck? Whereas that's mm -hmm. probably not even something that was particularly uncommon. No, absolutely not. Um, yeah. So so we've got Tar Baby. She's back at SUNY being an amazing professor. We've got Dreaming Emmett. And then in 1987, she publishes Beloved. And for this, she's awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. So I made a couple of notes on this because I want to just kind of touch on Beloved for a little bit. Yep. The book's dedication reads 60 million and more, which refers to the Africans and their descendants who died as a result of the Atlantic slave trade. The book's epigraph is Romans 9.25, which is, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Damn. Yeah, I... <laughs> give me chills so this book it touches on mother and daughter themes the psychological effects of slavery and life after being freed manhood pain it's basically a lot of people say that this is kind of her seminal work yeah basically yeah. i mean she wins the pulitzer for it so it's no joke um it was adapted into a film in 1998 where which was produced by and starring Oprah Winfrey. Um, it wasn't particularly well received okay. as a film, um, but the book kind of stands the test of time. Yeah. I didn't so, know it was a film. I haven't seen it, but I've seen pictures of Oprah in it, and it's like, Oprah, just, you know, why not? Yeah, why not? Like, I'm going to produce this film and be in it. You do you. Do what you want. Yeah. And she was a close friend of Toni Morrison, so... Oh, well, then. We'll have better. It. Yeah. So, um, even though... The book is very successful. It's still quite divisive. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't win either the National Book Award or the National Book Critics Circle Award. 
But because of this, 48 black critics and writers, including Maya Angelou, um, I made another list of more writers, um, Lucille Clifton, Jane Cortez, John Wideman, Quincy Troop, and many more, all wrote a statement which was published in the New York Times, basically asking, why the hell is this book not winning more awards? And a quote from that letter, Alive, we write this testament of thanks to you, dear Tony. Alive, beloved, and persevering, magical. For all of America, for all of American letters, you have advanced the moral and artistic standards by which we must measure the daring and the love of our national imagination and our collective intelligence as people. So people love Toni Morrison's work and it's contributing to the zeitgeist of the culture in such a huge way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But obviously, two months after this letter is published in the New York Times is when she gets the Pulitzer. So Beloved is actually part of a trilogy Two more books, Jazz and Paradise, are published later. But between the publication of Jazz and Paradise, Tony is awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993. Oh, I didn't know she won that. Yeah. She's the first black woman of any nationality to be awarded the Nobel Prize. Oh, I have like a huge smile on my face. Yeah, so the accolades (laughs) just keep coming, um, both academically and culturally. In 1996, the National Endowment for the Humanities selected Tony for the Jefferson Lecture, the US federal government's highest honour for distinguished intellectual achievement. And she delivers a speech which she called The Future of Time, Literature and Diminished Expectations. Now, I wrote out quite a long quote from this, but when I read it, I literally like had full body chills and it was just, she wrote this in 1996. Yeah. And... I think it's just the most relevant for how we kind of talk about our culture today. So I'm going to read it, even though it's quite long. No, you have to go for it. So she said, It is abundantly clear that in the political realm, the future is already catastrophe. Political discourse enunciates the future it it references as something we leave to or assure our children, or in a giant leap of faith, our grandchildren. It is the pronoun, I suggest, that ought to trouble us. We are not being asked to rally for the children, but for ours. Our children stretches our concern for two, uh, for two or five generations. The children gestures towards time to come of greater, broader, brighter possibilities, precisely what politics veils from view. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if you were sitting, Tony. listening to that? Like, she's Tony. just so wise and just and it's so, spitting it, truth. She's spitting truth. And it's so... When you hear a quote like that, that it still hits a nail on the head today, mm-hmm. um, which means that we're not done. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 1997, uh, the third Beloved book, Paradise, comes out. Um, and based on Beloved, she actually writes the libretto for the musical opera called Margaret Garner. Oh, great. Star. Um, that was completed in 2002 with music by Richard, I think it's pronounced Daniel Poor. I'm very sorry if that is incorrect. Um, sorry, and, Richard. <laughs> sorry, Rick. Um, and that was performed at the NYC Opera in 2007. So Tony continues to write um, and release more novels as well as literary criticism and other nonfiction. She receives several other professorships um, at Cornell and honorary doctorates, including one from Oxford. And while all this is happening, she holds the Robert F. Goheen Chair in the Humanities at Princeton University. And at Princeton, she was based in the creative writing program. 
and she's at Princeton until her retirement in 2006. So wow, sorry, one second. Let's just let's just take in all the things you just said. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not done, amazingly. All right. Okay. But truly, there's so many points where I could have just stopped and been like, and that's it, and that's a, that's more than enough. I so much more than enough. But she just keeps keeps going. She also wrote books for children, and she wrote a lot of these with her youngest son, as we know, Slade, best uh-huh. name of all time. Um, <laughs> and she just gets, you know, another honorary doctorate from Rutgers. I think you pronounce it Rutgers uh-huh. University um, in New Brunswick, and she gets that in 2011. So she's retired in 2006. She just gets another honorary doctorate, just casually. Yeah. I'm always getting honorary doctorates. <laughs> I wish. I wish. Actually, though, no, because... I probably need to do quite a lot of work together. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, she um, did the work. Yeah, she put the hours in. Yeah. But on a, well, a sad turn, her son, Slade, actually ends up dying of cancer. Oh, my God. Um, in 2010. And she's understandably so bereft from this that she stops oh. writing for a while. But then she's quoted as saying, I stopped writing until I began to think. He would be really put out if he thought that he had caused me to stop. Please, mom, I'm dead. Could you keep going? Oh my god! So, oh god, she does. Um, <laughs> she just there's so many achievements. I literally I like printed off a list of all the awards <laughs> that she got. I'm not going to read them because we would literally be here for eight years. Uh-huh. But just look it up. She it it's kind of stupid. Like I, just kind of in quick succession, we have an honorary doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania, an honorary doctorate from Harvard. And then the Nobel Prize. Just, you know, in a few years of each other. Yeah, exactly. Just a normal Tuesday. Just amazing, amazing work. Um, she was very political, obviously. <laughs> um, she was never afraid to comment on politics. Um, very staunch supporter of the Democratic uh, Party in America. She spoke to the treatment of Bill Clinton during his impeachment process. The way that he was, you know guilty without trial in a way and mm-hmm. she likened that to the way that a lot of black people slash you, you could argue all black people or people of colour in America and elsewhere in the world are treated she was a great supporter of Barack Obama and when he was elected she said that she felt like an American for the first time quote I felt very powerfully patriotic when I went to the inauguration of Barack Obama I felt like a kid oh my god how cute is that that's so nice. I remember this is really a weird thing to say but I remember when Barack Obama was inaugurated, me and my mum and dad, all people from Scotland, never even been to America, mm-hmm. we like stood in front of the TV and cried. Oh. Without, you know, any of the, kind of a, a, an understanding of what a monumentous thing that was, but without any of this heritage, basically, mm-hmm. that she has spent her whole life writing about and working mm-hmm. to showcase. Yeah. And she was there. Yeah. It's amazing. Chills. And she went on... I, I find her to be a very funny character. I think that she's very... Some of the things that she writes, to me, I read them very tongue-in-cheek. Uh-huh. And she's kind of... She seemed to be the first one to kind of take the piss out of herself. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't afraid to take the piss out of everyone else around her as well, which I think is just... She was writing about such serious themes, but she was also coming at it with a sense of humour a lot of the time. Yeah. But, so she's so elated when Obama is elected and then obviously that is followed by none other than our boy, Mr. Donald Trump. 
Um, She wrote an essay after he was elected called Mourning for Whiteness. Um, And the kind of main gist of that essay is that people are so obsessed in America with white supremacy that they're willing to elect someone who is endorsed by the KKK, which, truth. That's the truth. You can't argue with it. Yeah, that's it. will try, but I'm sorry, but it's true. Um, She wasn't always keen to label herself as a feminist. Obviously, you have to understand that she's coming at it from a place where the brand of feminism that is often sold is not one that includes people of of colour. Yeah. Um, And, you know, in her lifetime, the feminism that she will have seen didn't include her a lot of the time. Very centred on white women. Exactly. And so you can understand why she wouldn't be that keen to immediately stand up and say, yeah, I'm a feminist, even though through her work you can see that she is, she was entirely a feminist. But at the end of her career, um, she had 11 novels, six children's books, two short fiction works, two plays, an opera libretto, and a huge bibliography of non-fiction work. She died in August 2019 um, from complications of pneumonia at the age of 88. And she was eulogised by everyone and anyone (laughs) um, at the time. I have a few quotes from a couple of different eulogies, just because (laughs) they were really great. And this is from Ben Oakry. Um, He said, the body of her work is not vast, but it has remarkable compression and the fire of an unmistakable vitality. Candice Carty-Williams... Argal Argal said it's that way of accessing human emotion into so many books that we can relate to even though she's not writing in this time and in this space we owe the world to her and Oprah said she believed it was a writer's job to rip the veil off and bore down to the truth she took the canon she broke it open and that is a very bastardized version <laughs> of the life and the work and the greatness of Tony Morrison. I've just been like staring at Julia for the past, <laughs> the past 20 minutes, like like a child hearing a story behind the fire. We've had hot eyes this whole time. Yeah, exactly. Like, she was just incredible. And it's weird, like when, when someone dies, when they live to such an age as 88, you're kind of like, oh, well, you know, they've lived a life kind of yeah. thing. And this could be any old person who's had a very normal life. Yeah. And Tony just did so much yeah. and did it all really well uh-huh. and, and with such like strength and mm-hmm. success like, yeah she was so decorated mm-hmm. which is exactly what she deserved yeah but um it's like we said before about like julia hesman how sometimes there's there's this idea that people who are famous for one thing mm-hmm. shouldn't become involved in other things or shouldn't have a platform mm-hmm. for politics or whatever and the fact that she very obviously made it such a part of her life to say, well, this is exactly the, mm-hmm. the thing I need to talk about. It's just, the body of work is just yeah Yeah, it's one, sorry, one of the eulogies, like her, what, what did it say about her body of work was not fast? Yeah, like, I was think... It, nothing. Was it not fast enough? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think... I'll take it. Yeah, 100%. It, I think, you know, I think a lot of writers really bash them out. Yeah. And... I can kind of get the impression I've read quite a few of her books and even reading them, you kind of read them and then take several weeks to recover from them, Right. I find. And that's coming from me, a, a white person who quite often can't relate directly uh-huh. to what's happening. And it's like I said last time, 
there's so many parts of history that I just don't know about. Yeah. And it, you know, it's not entirely my fault, but at the same time, uh, it's my job to remedy that and to yeah. learn about it. And But this is what we wanted to do with yeah. this whole podcast. We wanted to, and that's why we're asking you guys as well, if you're listening, you mm-hmm. folks, if you're listening, if you have someone that you think is really inspiring that maybe we haven't heard of because mm-hmm. we're you know, British people who went to British school and we might not have heard of someone who was, uh, you know, who was from a colonised country but was really incredible. Mm. Who's just never come up. Yeah. And let us know because we want to learn about as many incredible women as we can. And we want to talk about them. We do. I love that. I loved researching that one. Oh. It made me feel, it made me feel all manner of things. Yeah. But I really... Just, I love her. I absolutely love her. What? I was going to say what an icon, but that's just so, like, over. I know. It doesn't even come up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also absolutely beautiful as well. Like, you'll see on the Instagram, we'll put a picture up of, yeah. of everyone that we're talking about. And she's just, she's glowed. Toni Morrison. We did it. Uh, I'm trying to think who I'm going to do next. I think I'll maybe do someone who wasn't. Um, not necessarily wasn't maternal, but just <laughs> I've just noticed that I have, switch up a bit. I have a theme so far, and I don't want that to be kind of mm-hmm. women do a lot of things that are different. Okay. So maybe I'll switch up. Mm. How are you feeling? I also sorry I haven't done anyone Scottish. I acknowledge that. I'll mm-hmm. get to it. Yeah, I'll get to it. And I've got the list, but uh, some of them require a lot of research. I've got a few like groups of Scottish women. Mm that I want to do or we want to do together mm-hmm. um, we'll do a bumper episode yeah 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 I mean I, I I can very I could have very easily done just every just gone through the phone book and done every Mancunian <laughs> woman I would love that in order alphabetical order of yeah. surname yeah every episode but you got to switch it up you have to it would be nice if like we could do like specials for like um you know, so Andrew's Day, we'll both do someone Scottish and, um, you know, other dates that are, like, relevant to certain things we'll do. Mm-hmm. Themed yeah. episodes, that would be cute. If you have any suggestions of themes, like we said, let us know. Let us know. Then also, so we want to acknowledge that we call this podcast Some Woman mm. because we love women and we love talking about women. We love being women. But we also want to acknowledge that we want to celebrate non-binary people as well. And as we mentioned in the last episode, we want this to be a very inclusive uh, experience for everyone. We want to talk about trans women. We want to talk about cisgender women. We want to talk about uh, non-binary people as well. Um, But neither of us are non-binary. So it would be great if any of you are listening, if you're non-binary, give us some input Mm. on what you would like to see when we you know, handle topics like that. We're aware that we've already called the podcast Some Woman. Mm. If you think that's restrictive, let us know. Yeah. If you have any opinions on that and if you have resources on where we can learn about the history of some non-binary people. Please. Um, because obviously some sources can be very kind of uh, gender normative. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they will misrepresent someone who was non-binary as um, identifying as a certain gender or another. Mm-hmm. And um, it would be good if someone has a, a good source that we can trust that they are, you know, respecting how this person presented and how this person identified. Yeah. So heads up. We are uh, Some Woman Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That is 
Sum, S-O-M-E, woman, W-U-M-M-I-N, mm-hmm. pod, and summerwomenpod at gmail.com. Smashing. Smashing. Anything else? Uh, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. We missed it. Have a nice day with your mums, with anyone you love, with yourselves. Have a good day. Have a good day, today and always. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next time. Kathleen, that's Julia. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.